All right. Well, good morning. Hey, there you go. Awesome. I'm so glad to see you guys. Hey, I got a question. How many of you guys do CrossFit? Raise your hand. No, raise it high. Don't be, yeah, come on. All right. Yeah, you, you the lone one in here. Uh, man, you're going to make my joke not nearly as funny. Well, everybody look at Chandler whenever I talk about CrossFit. Um, hey, 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 CrossFit, right? I don't know if you, if you do CrossFit or not, but here's the one thing that I know about CrossFit. There's only two types of cro- people in the world, those who love CrossFit and those who hate CrossFit, right? You either think CrossFit's the thing or you think it's a cult. Uh, which one is it? Who knows? I, I, like, all I know is like this dude, he'll get up at like 4.45 in the morning and he's jazzed and ready to go. Like, seriously, I have a friend of mine, the pastor at Northside Church, Dustin, who has tried to get me to do CrossFit for like the last two years. And I'm just being honest, I'm, not, I'm never going to do it. I fall into one of those two camps, I'll let you figure that out. Here, here's why CrossFit's such a big deal. All right, it, it, like, it's not really a joke. Here's why CrossFit's such a big deal. They've tapped into something that all of us love and long for, all right? They, they have their own language. They have their own ideas. They, they, they have all of these things because they've figured out how to do something. Now, let me ask you, was it work out? No, there's a gym on every corner. If you're like me, you spent the last 10 years paying for a gym membership that you never used. So it's not working out. Here's what they've tapped into. They've tapped into and they've recognized that the one thing we all want, they can provide, which is community. You see, they've created an essence that, that you can belong here. That's why they have a language like they have, right? They, I heard the other day that they don't call them gems. They call them boxes, right? They have, they have all these words and lingo, and, and when you go, like your times are on a sheet, or, or you know exactly what's happening. Look, it's the same reason why Starbucks can sell you a terrible cup of coffee for $4 and convince you that it's good, right? Because they're not selling coffee. They're selling an experience. They're selling community, right? If you think about it, the reason why this works so well, guys, is because what all of us long for is the one thing that they've figured out how to provide, community, belonging. Uh, Honestly, um, when you start like backtracking and doing deductive reasoning on this stuff, here's what you come up with. Each Inside of each and every one of us is hardwired this idea that we long for or we're created for community. We're created to belong, right? I, I don't know if you know that, but that's why whenever you're isolated or you, or you feel like nobody's around you or nobody wants you, like, like you, the loneliness that you feel is, is this idea of like you want to be known. You want people to love you. You want to belong. And this is, again, this is what places like Starbucks and Apple and CrossFit, um, they've all tapped into the idea that they're not selling you a product They're selling you a culture. Here's what I want to show you today as we look at Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go to Acts chapter 2. I want to show you where that comes from. That comes from this idea that we are, that's hardwired into every single one of us, this idea of community, right? That that deep within all of us, this, this meaning that we want is found, listen, it's found in the church and it's found this way because that's how God has designed us. So a few weeks ago, as, as we circle back, we started this, um, this sermon series on the book of Acts. Uh, hey, I, I, pause real quick. Garrett, can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm, I, I, am I, I feel like I'm loud. Cool. Thanks. Um, 
In the book of Acts, remember this, Luke begins the book by, by telling you something in verse 1-1 that's really important. He tells you that Jesus began to teach. Remember this, Acts and Luke are one, it's, it's two parts of the same book. Where, where the, the gospel of Luke, Luke tells us that he's writing to a guy named Theophilus to show him or to prove to him that Jesus is who he said that he was. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, um, Luke writes the second part of the book called the book of Acts. And here's what he says. He says, O Theophilus, I'm writing to you to prove to you all that Jesus began to do and teach. The idea is this, is that Jesus isn't done yet. That what Jesus did on earth is continuing, and it's continuing in this movement, as you saw this video just a second ago, that started in this central location in Jerusalem, and over 2,000 years later, there are billions of people in the world who have come to faith, and it's spreading through these small communities called the church. So this is how the scene unfolds. Remember this, right? Jesus comes. He's hanging out with his disciples. He's about to raise up and ascend into heaven for the very last time. And he gathers them together in this small place in Jerusalem. And you remember what he tells them. He says, wait here in Jerusalem, and I'm going to give you the promise of my spirit, the Holy Spirit, which we talked about for the last two weeks. And then you are going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now remember this. This is really awesome and crazy all at the same time. The people that spread the gospel to the ends of the earth were 11 ordinary men. Remember this, these, most of these guys were, were fishermen or, or not, they're unskilled laborers, uneducated, people that you would have never thought could do this. And here's what God says. My plan has always been for ordinary people to do extraordinary things when they're empowered by the Spirit of God living inside of them. Why do I say this? I, I, here's what I want you to hear me say before we even jump into this text. Because I think that as a church or as the church globally, we've been taught for several years that you, all you have to do is pay a professional Christian to stand up here, give good messages, and invite people to church, and, and the church is going to explode. Did you know that's not how the church was ever meant to be? The church was always meant to be when God's people, empowered by God's spirit, would multiply out. And think about it, if 150 of us in this room would take the gospel and spread it like wildfire because we know that God's power is inside of us, then amazing, extraordinary things can happen. And that's how 11 people absolutely turn the world upside down with the gospel. So check this out. The Holy Spirit comes and he ascends, uh, descends on people. And this idea happens in Acts chapter 2, which we looked at yesterday, or last week, sorry, called the day of Pentecost, which Pentecost literally means 50 days after the resurrection. And what you see is something absolutely extraordinary happen, that God's power comes down and over 3,000 people come to faith when Jesus, or when Peter, I'm sorry, proclaims this, this message of the gospel. And let me ask you, uh, I know we didn't cover this, but do you know what Peter preached? It's really fascinating. I wish we had time to go into it, but all Peter does is he connects the dots of how the Old Testament all points to Jesus and how it's all meant to come together in this community of faith that God has been calling a people to himself since the beginning of time. This is, what, this is what Peter does. He looks at it and he says, guys, God made promises to people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he called a people out of Israel, um, or he called a people out of Egypt into this place called the promised land. And then over and over and over again for hundreds of, and then thousands of years, God has been calling a people to himself, all culminating into this moment where Jesus Christ would put on flesh. He would live the life we can never live, die the death we deserve to die, in order to call a people to himself. So on this day at Pentecost, 3,000 people from all over the known world would come together and they would hear that the community that they've been longing for is fulfilled in the gospel. So here's the scene. 
You've got these 3,000 people, right? They're all in Jerusalem together, and they come from everywhere, which means that they really have nothing in common. And then God begins to gather them together into this thing called the church, right? What you're going to see today is the very first church that's ever existed. Now, I told you this a few weeks ago. This word church, it's a, it's a really interesting word in Greek. It's this word ekklesia, which actually means a called-out movement, right? The, 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 the idea is, is that the church would be a group of people that God has set apart for the purpose of calling them out to go on mission. Again, I don't know what your background is, but most of us, that's not how we've heard of the church. We've heard jokes like, uh, here's the church, here's the steeple, here's the people, right? They, like, you just kind of gather together. And, and, and honestly, the, the, historically speaking, this comes from somewhere in history, the word that we started using for church moved from this word ecclesia to this word kirche, which is a German word that means a place, a place or a building. And, and here's what I want to show you is that the Bible never, ever, ever says that that's what the church is supposed to be. No, the Bible's supposed to be a movement. Acts chapter 1, what does Jesus tell the disciples to do when he leaves? He says, go. Go and you're going to be my witnesses. He says, Jerusalem, Judea, and the end of the earth. Basically, that means like where they're at all the way to the ends of the earth. Matthew 28, the very last words that Jesus says before he ascends into heaven is go therefore and make disciples. You see, the church, listen, a church that isn't moving, I want you to hear me say this and hear me say it really clearly, a church that isn't moving and a church that isn't on mission isn't a church according to the Bible. It's a hangout, a small group, a gathering, it's a concert or whatever you want to call it, but it's not a church. A church is a group of people that are set apart on fire by Jesus and sent out for the mission of God. All right? So here's where we're going today. If you have your Bible, Acts chapter 2, right? Here's what I want you to see today. And you can write this down. The early church, the early church was a movement centered around a mission. It was a movement centered around a mission. God saved 3,000 people in one day, and he started organizing these people into this thing called the church. Now, again, one last thing before we jump into this. Um, I think that we've, again, somehow we create these binaries, if you know what I mean. They're either ors, false, call them false dichotomies. You're either this or you're either that. It's like, like sometimes we say things like either cats are bad or they're evil, and it's like, no, they're probably both, right? That's kind of just how this works. Here, here's what we've done with the church. So if you're not familiar with the church, we, we tend to make these binaries. You're either a movement, right, you're, you're this missional church, or you're an institution, or you're like this attractional church, right? Here's what I want you to hear me say, and you're going to see me unpack this. The Bible's really clear. We're both. Tim, Tim Keller wrote a book called Center Church, and in it, he talks about how all movements have to be institutions, and all institutions have to be movements. He says, think about it. If you go to the grocery store and there's no checkout line, if there's no organizational strategy, you have chaos. What you're going to see in this text is that God creates a movement of people, these 3,000 people from everywhere, and then he organizes them together into this community of faith called the church. City so Church, th th by the way, this is our goal. Can I just tell you that we want to be a movement because we believe movements move and people come to faith. I, just to be honest with you, it would have been a lot easier not to plant a church. We came here to plant a church because we believe that God has something absolutely unbelievably powerful that he wants to do in this city and he wants to use us to do it. But we also want to be this institution, hear me whenever I say this, that has organizational structures that create pathways for us to be a community of people who love one another well. I just don't think that you have to choose between the two. And you're going to hear me say this over and over and over again, that the gospel is balance, 
right? When you think about the church, we need to be balanced. We need to love each other well, and we need to serve outside. We need to be a family, and we need to be outwardly focused. That's why that's our word for the year. If you, you're going to hear us talk about this a lot. We're an outwardly focused family. So we don't need to neglect one for the other. Make sense? All right, Acts chapter 2. We're finally ju- jumping into it here. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, okay? And they, these 3,000 people that just came to faith, w- devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food (coughs) with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All right, you ready? Rapid fire today. All right, I'm going to hit a bunch of stuff. Here's what I want you to see. If healthy churches have six things that they do really well, we call these imperatives. These are necessities in the church. You're going to see these in this text. And if we do these six things really well, I think there's one implication that will come out of that. So if you're a note taker, six things that I'm going to cover really quickly, and then one implication that comes from a healthy church. All right, look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, if you, again, if you underline things in your Bible, if you write things, that word devoted is a word that you need to circle or underline. It's probably the most important word in here. They devoted themselves to one another. You see that? Listen, they chose to be together. This was a really big deal, y'all, because Christianity at that time wasn't just something you do casually. I, I just need you to see this, that the word here is that they devoted themselves. These 3,000 people, listen to me, they were not the ultra-spiritual, varsity-level Christians that you think of. They weren't like what you think of me whenever you think you have nothing to relate to because I'm the pastor. No, these were normal, everyday people. They were people like you. They get up, they go to work, they have jobs, they have families. But what they had was they had an encounter with the living God. And when they had an encounter with the living God, they became hungry for God. So they devoted themselves. Can I pause really quickly and ask you, is this what your life looks like? Serious question. Does your life look like one that's hungry for God? That you prioritize God and you devote yourself to God because you've been captured by God? Listen, I don't want to shame you, but I just heard new research that says the the average church-going Christian in America, statistically speaking, goes 1.6 times a month. That's those people who identify as churchgoers. Can I just tell you that's not devoted Listen, again, I don't want to shame you, but I can promise you the things you devote yourself to, the things you give yourself to, are the things that capture you. So my question for you is this, are you devoted to Jesus and his church? Or are you devoted to something else? So here's what they devoted themselves to. Number one, biblical teaching. They devoted themselves to biblical teaching. See, this Greek word for devoted means that they thrived on it. They hungered on it. They grabbed onto it. They devoted themselves continually, if you will, to this idea of biblical teaching. They were hungry for God's word, right? How'd they get there? These are the same people that just a few days earlier had never heard God's word, not the completeness of it. How'd they get there? Listen, they experienced Jesus. They experienced Jesus, and it turned their world upside down. Do you you get that? That When you have an encounter with the living God, 
There's only one thing that can happen to you. You have to devote yourself to it. When you finally experience and taste the goodness of God, you're devoted to it. Think about it. Think about it. The things that you long for, I mean, even in a physical sense, like food, make you hungry and you need it over and over again. It's like breathing. Nobody has to teach you how to breathe. You just naturally do it. Why? Because your body craves it. My question for you is, and the same question that they had is, do you crave God's word? Do you understand that this book comprised of 66 books with 40 different authors written over thousands of years telling one complete story about how you are an eternal being made in the image of God, perfect and beautiful and holy, set apart for God's likeness, and then when you rebelled against him, he sent forth his son. Listen to me, this is amazingly important, and oftentimes we've heard it, we become inoculated by it, that we forget it. God himself, who created everything, put on flesh and subjected himself to his own creation to die for you because you are the affection of his creation. And not only did he do that, he didn't just leave you wondering what happened to him. He wrote you the greatest love story ever imaginable. My question for you is, if God wrote you a letter, would you read it? Like seriously, if the heavens open up right now and God's like, he dropped a letter right here, would you read it? The answer is probably you would. I think the question you have to ask is, do you really believe that God wrote this? Because they did. They did. And they devoted themselves to it. Church, honestly, the foundation of God's word is what built them. That's why we say around here, God's word's our ultimate authority. If I'm honest with you, that's why we open up the Bible every single week. People ask, like, what's the creative things you're going to do? Nothing. I'm just going to open up God's word and tell you what I think it says. Right? Because I don't have any authority in of myself. I just want to give you what God says because God's word's what has power. So they had a regular, continuous time where they met with Jesus. I want to be real practical. Right? A healthy church. Six essences of a healthy church. Number one is biblical teaching. My question to you is, do you have a regular, continuous time that you meet with God? Do you? Seriously. If you don't, you probably have an unhealthy relationship with God. So, in a world, listen, that's filled with all kinds of messages. You get branded messages all the time. Right? Thousands upon thousands of marketing messages to, to you every single day. In a world that's filled with all kinds of messages that's trying to tell you what to believe, God has sent forth his word. My question is, are you hungry for it? Listen, again, I don't want to come off wrong, and I don't want you, I don't want you to be, like, offended. Well, actually, I kind of do. Whenever I say that and I write that in my notes, I'm like, I kind of do. I just, anyway, listen, I think the greatest problem in today, today's world of Christianity is this. I, it really is. I think your greatest and my greatest problem is a Bible literacy deficiency. You, you hear what I'm saying? I don't think you know your Bible. Like, honestly, if you actually look statistically, we are, here's the offensive part, the dumbest Bible literate society ever. We are. We are. We don't, we don't know it. We don't, we don't quote it. We don't memorize it. We don't hunger for it. We're inoculated by it. But in the South, and this is the greatest danger of being a Southern Christian, is you can show up to a place every single week where Jesus himself shows up through his spirit and miss him. And you can do this at home and everywhere else because we have busied our lives so much that the one thing we need to hunger for, what Jesus says that my word is living water that clinches your thirst for life. Guys, I, I think, I think, if I can speculate, the reason why so many of you are so unhappy is because you're going to a well that's dry when God has provided living water through his word. It's so good. Can I challenge you? Can I challenge you? 
just to one thing, to be hungry for God's word, to devote yourself for it, right? Can't just five, five minutes, five minutes a day, set aside a time. And look, it's, it's really, really easy. Like, it's done for you. Here, I'll give you one, one way. If you have an iPhone, take it out, like you can do that in church, and grab, go to the app store and download Bible reading app. It will do everything for you. It will track it for you. It will tell you when to read it, how much you read. It will give you reminders. Like, it will literally do everything for you. If you don't have an iPhone, go home, repent, go buy an iPhone. Because if I'm honest with you, like, none of us like when your text message comes up green anyway. Like, like you're just making us all angry. So go get an iPhone, go back home, download the app, and then you're going to be good. No, but seriously, seriously, devote yourself to God's Word, and I promise you, you'll see God show up in your life in amazing, amazing ways. Number two, fellowship. Fellowship. It's word koinonia. And they gave themselves to the fellowship. Koinonia, what every cheesy church is named. Koinonia, fellowship. The word fellowship, it literally meant community. It meant community. It meant that they gave themselves to one another in community. They, you see, they didn't just devote themselves to God's word. Listen to me. They devoted themselves to one another. They needed each other, right? The church is an assembly that gave themselves to one another. Now, I know, you're going to think, like, this is genius. I came up with this all by myself. Listen, write it down. It's impossible to be a church if you never meet together. We kind of laugh at that, but did you know in 2019 we're trying to create that with online and all this other stuff and these experiences where you never actually have to be together? Listen, God's Word is not just listening to a sermon, even though that's part of it. God's Word is we need one another. The one another's in Scripture, over and over and over again, we were created for one another. Notice, when God created His church, He didn't just create Christians that set apart. No, He created us for one another. We were God's community set apart from the very beginning, okay? In creation, Genesis chapter 1, if you go back and read it, listen, there's a really unique word there where it says, God said, let us create man in our own image. He's talking about the Trinity, that God has always coexisted in one person, which means that if you're created in the image of God, now I know this is really nerdy, and that means you reflect God's attributes. Listen, one thing we know about God is God has always eternally existed in community with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which means that in your essence, you were created for community. And here's what that means, is until you get that, you're going to be empty. Well, how do we know this? Well, Adam, Adam, first human being's created. He's kind of hanging out. He's naming animals and doing this and that. And one thing God says is he says, oh, but it's not good for you to be alone. And then God creates this beautiful female woman coming up, and Adam's doing cartwheels, and he's like, I'm finally full. Because he understood, listen, that he was created to be in community. Right? Here's what happens. Here's how Satan works. Just side note, step on my soapbox really quickly. Every time I get an email that somebody's mad in our church, here's what the first thing you say is, I'm leaving, right? Every time, I'm isolating myself, I'm going away, I'm out. Like, it doesn't really, do you, do you know that that's Satan's greatest tactic on you? Isolation? I, I heard it said, I, my old pastor JD always says this, but he took it from another guy who's a counselor, and he says, nothing healthy ever grows in mutant isolated gardens, Nothing. Here's why. If, if we can isolate ourselves because we've convinced ourselves that we don't need each other because somebody's wronged me, then, then I feel like I'm going to be better about myself. But all you do is, one, you become isolated, and then you become vulnerable and dangerous, or, two, you create an echo chamber of everybody around you that just thinks and acts the same way that you do. It's like turning on the news today, right, where you turn on your favorite channel, and all you hear is people talk about the things you already agree with. Like, that doesn't grow you. It just creates an environment to where you lose, 
and everybody else around you loses. Here's why this is so important, okay? Number one is we need one another because number two, the most dangerous thing you can do in your isolation is be by yourself. Like, that's where you go wrong. That's where you die. Community, here, here, you can write it down like this. Community leads to growth and fulfillment. Individualism, individualism leads to isolation and destruction. Every time. It, here's the other end of this. If you find yourself wanting to be by yourself, can I just tell you that's a big old red flag that says I need to check that there might be something wrong with my heart right now? Right? When you start distancing yourself from community, slowly, you better pump the brakes and say, what's going on? Listen, the church is most powerful because we have the Spirit of God working inside of us to build a community. It's not that they need it, it's that we need it, right? We need one another. I love, Alexander Strzok said it like this, and I know this is the greatest run-on sentence of your entire life. Somebody already pointed this out to me earlier, but it's a good one. The church is the place where the most intimate of human relationships can express the love, closeness, privileges, and relationships that exist between God and man and man and man. The local Christian church, then, is to be a close-knit family of brothers and sisters. That's what family looks like, right? That, oh, I got a lot of brothers and sisters. We don't always like each other, but we love each other. Like, I can tell you that. I would come home, and me and my brothers, we'd fight like cats and dogs, but the moment we left the house, we were family. I, I, true story. My oldest brother quit school in sixth grade to make sure that I went to school, me and my other brother. I, if you're new here, I grew up in a kind of a jacked up home, like you can get into that later, um, but he was the reason why I went to school, and my brother, and me and my other brother are the only two people, not anymore, but at that time that had a college education, because my brother sacrificed so that I could have life. Be honest, that's the essence of community. It doesn't always look like that, but this is, this is what Alexander Strat's saying, isn't it? Look, the church is the place where we can express ourselves in closeness and privileges and relationships. We can exist between man and man and God and man and like this beautiful brotherhood and sisterhood, that tight-knit family to where we have all the privileges of the community because we've given ourselves to one another. If you were to, if you were to bring the Bible down to one word, all these words are one word, I think the most common word that you would see in the Bible is this idea of relationship and community. Think about it. N.T. Wright, famous theologian, he says over 50 times the New Testament uses these each other phrases. Listen, what, listen, love each other, serve each other, pray for each other, encourage each other, admonish each other, be devoted to each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. I'll let somebody else explain that one to you later. Honor each other, teach each other, accept each other, bear each other's burdens, sing to each other, submit to each other, and forgive each other. Over and over and over and over and over and over again, the Bible says as the community of faith, we are to encourage each other, to build each other up, to walk each other into the presence of God. Listen, embracing these one another's, these each other's in all of our flaws is the most powerful display of God's kingdom on earth that the world could ever see. This is why in our membership covenant, we always, we emphasize the point that we are not going to gossip or fight about trivial stuff. Because again, guys, if I'm just honest with you, the thing that I've seen the church get torn apart with most is not the outside world talking about whatever they think about the church. You hear what, you hear what I'm saying? It's not that the world thinks like we don't, like we're liberal, we're all these things, uh, whatever you want to fill in the blank with, bigot or whatever. Like that's not what tears apart the church. The world has always thought that. What tears apart the church is that we fight with each other, right? And then we implode. Listen, over and over and over again, it says that. 
right? But here's the deal. You ever notice, you ever notice that these 3,000 people, they had nothing in common, spoke different languages. It says the one thing is whenever they empowered God, they never stopped meeting together. They took their diversity and they had a unity because they were centered around a mission that was bigger than them. And it changed not only them, but the entire world. The book of Hebrews tells us don't neglect to meet together regularly. Guys, we need one another. If I'm honest, I need you. I need you. I need you to encourage me. God has designed me for community. I'll tell you this. Like, it is the most powerful, powerful picture for all of us whenever we can practice this. This week. This week, if I'm just be vulnerable, like I had one of those weeks that was really hard because when you plant a church, something happens to you and, and it's like this five-year-long roller coaster, it feels like, where you have these continual highs and then lows and sometimes they happen back to back and in the same day. And, and I had one of those this week where, where I was like, I was struggling because I was so excited. Something crazy, awesome happened and then something bad happened. And, I, and I'm sitting there and I'm kind of sulking in myself and I remember I picked up the phone and I called one of our elders and I told him. I said, man, I need, I need you. I need you to remind me to why I'm doing what I'm doing. And you know what he does? He did. He reminded me of that. And, and, and it was like this experience where it was like, oh, like I know that, but I needed you to tell me that again. And I need to hear it over and over again. I need you to preach the gospel to me. And then I went for a run and uh, came back home and worked through it. And, that's, and look, it's a daily battle. It's not one that goes away. It's not like I hear the gospel once and I get it and I move on from it. No, community is when we love each other well and in the depth of our despair, we pull each other back up. Like This is the most awesome picture. Now, I, I've told this illustration 400,000 times, so I get it. If you've heard it, keep, keep it. But it's, it, it's the best illustration that I can think of when it comes to this. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. And in this book, he talks about three friends that he had, Tolkien, uh, who wrote Lord of the Rings, Lewis, and some other guy. Uh, I'd like to be that guy, and I don't know who that guy is. But he, here's what he says. It's like when these three friends were together, Tolkien died. And he says, man, when, when Tolkien died, he's like, the one thing I knew is that I would miss Tolkien. I get that, right? My friend died, and I knew I'd miss him. He goes, what I didn't expect is that there was a part of me that I lost too. And a part of my other friend, because when the three of us hung out, he's like, there were different aspects that were drawn out of us that were only possible when we were in community. And then, then his conclusion is, is the greatest form of love happens in community because when we're in community, listen, here's what he says, is it's impossible to know each other and even know ourselves without knowing each other in community. Here's my thing. I, I say this all the time. If that's true, and I think it is, how much more impossible is it for us to know God if we don't know God with one another? Let me, let me tell you how this works. You have an individual relationship with God, and you have an individual relationship with God, and so do you, and so do you, and you see this one aspect of God, and when we come together in community, listen, you draw out that aspect, and so do you, and so do you, and then we get to see a full and complete picture of God through one another. I think this is what Matthew 5 is saying when, when Jesus says, you are a city on a hill. Right, you are a light that shines brightly. It's not your little light. It's when all of our lights come together, and then we finally, for the first time, get to see a full and complete picture of God through one another. This, my friends, is what community looks like. It's looking at one another, and it's getting to see God through each other. Number three, sharing meals together. Sharing meals. Now, this literally means communion. Okay? This is communion. This means that, listen, they expected to meet with God. 
It doesn't mean that they just sat around the dinner table and had dinner together. No, it means that they took the physical and tangible signs of the gospel and they reminded each other of what Jesus had did to save them. So they celebrated communion. And here's what I want, to, I want you to hear me say this. The essence of the gospel and what you see is not only did Jesus die for you and raise from the dead, but it's the continual reminder of what he did and it's the celebration of that thing. Again, do you know why this is so important? Listen, because you easily and quickly forget the goodness of God. If you're like me, when things are really great, I tend to forget the goodness of God because I kind of pat myself on the back and I say I did a great job. When things are really bad, I tend to forget the goodness of God because I ask why questions. Like, God, where were you and why would you let that happen and all these other things. And by the way, some why questions are really difficult. But they both reveal the same thing is that we've lost focus on the goodness of God. Right? This roller coaster ride that all of us go on, this up and down, up and down. Here's what I want you to hear me say. I think it's almost impossible for you to make it through life with joy in the gospel if you do it alone. I really do. We need to remember. Right? We need to remember the great things that God has done for us. We need to remember the gospel. So in times when things are great, you need people to bring you back down. And say, hey man, like, I know you just had a lot of success and you got an awesome bonus, but I just want you to know, like, that's awesome, and God does love you, but he didn't bless you because you're happy, healthy, wealthy, and all these things. No, I mean, just really, seriously, I need you to hear me say this. Like, God, God gave you absolute incredible abilities that you didn't deserve, like the ability to be healthy, the ability to have a family and an education, to live in a country, like all these things, and just keep praising God because one day when things get really bad, I'm going to need you not to think that you are in the pits because God's mad at you. We have too much evidence of this in the Bible, right? When you read the Bible, listen to me, suffering seems to be one of the greatest ways that God brings you joy. So here's what they did is they reminded each other all the time. Through these two elements, communion, they shared meals together in baptism. See, you know what communion is? It's literally the, the reenactment of the gospel. That's why, that's why here at, a, at our church, here's what we say is if you're not a believer, don't take that. And it's not because we're trying to exclude you from anything, but it's literally because Paul says you're confessing that you believe that Jesus' body was broken for you and his blood was spilled for you. And this is why it says they did this regularly. They broke bread and they prayed together because they believed in the power of God and they believed that God moved through these things. So, again... I, I, I know this is really, really like big stuff, but listen, write this down. A church that remembers the gospel is a church that never forgets God's grace. It's really that simple. It's hard to forget God's grace when you're continually telling each other about God's grace. Number four, bold prayer, right? And they prayed. I say this a lot. They didn't just believe in God. They believed God. They didn't just believe in God. They believed God. That's why they prayed. They didn't just add Jesus to their life. No, they surrendered to him. This is the essence of what, what prayer looks like. It's surrender. It's God. I mean, do you realize this, that when you pray, it's the ultimate act of surrender? It is you falling down with your face to the ground, if you will, in a prostate, uh, 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 whatever, looking at God and saying, God, I need you. It's your uh, ultimate submission to him. Like, they believed that God had all that they needed for life and joy and everything else. And it was because they believed this, it drove them to their knees in prayer and dependence on God to provide all those things. So here's the question. 
Why don't we pray? I wrote this down. I think the reason why I don't pray, so I'm going to not say you but me, is because I don't believe that I need God. My life is structured in such a way that I can wake up, do my job, go home, pay my bills, and do everything that I ever need without ever asking God to supply any of my needs. This is why every time I travel to third world countries all over the world, here's what I see is I see a people that have absolutely nothing and they have the most joy I've ever seen because they depend on God and they love him to provide everything that they could ever have. They were desperate for God like these first Christians were. They had a sense of desperation and they wanted God to move and they understood their unworthiness of him moving. They needed God. The question that I have to ask myself all the time is, do I need God? Is my life centered in such a way that I need God? Because here's what happened as a result of them needing God. Watch this. When they prayed, verse 43 says, all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This word all that came upon every soul was like a heavy weight. Okay, that, that's what it means, like a weightiness came upon them. That they understood the weight of what they were doing and the significance of it, and it changed them. So it's, it's like this. I, I think the only illustration that I could have come up with that I thought about that kind of amounts to this is imagine, imagine that today somebody brought you the Constitution of the United States of America and let you hold it in your hands. The weight and responsibility that you would feel as you held that document, right? You'd be careful. You'd hold it. You would, you would treasure it. You would feel a respect for it. This is what they said, is when they spoke to God that they, they had a weight of unworthiness because they had encountered the living God, and they understood just how absolutely incredible it was that the God of the universe would allow them into their presence, and they fell down before him like they were holding a constitution or whatever you want to put in that place, and they were looking to God. This sense of awe and respect and weightiness. See, these people realized that they had a complete unworthiness to stand in God's presence. But God was so kind that he would die in their place and he would invite them into a relationship and the only response that they had was to fall down at their feet. So again, let me just ask you, is this what you feel when you come into this church on Sunday mornings? Do you feel a weight a weight that says, I'm about to meet with the God of the universe. Do you feel a respect or an awe? Like, we get to stand in God's presence. But I can just tell you, like, I, I, you guys know this. I've traveled the world. I've been to multiple countries and places that it's illegal to even gather together. And I promise you, those people, like, they feel the weight of it. If they could just do for 10 minutes what we get to do every single week, like, it would change their life. Do we just show up here on Sunday as casual Christians because that's what you do in the South? Or do you understand that the God of the universe is meeting with you? Because here's what happens. Crazy, amazing things happen to you whenever you believe that God can move and that he will move. Number five, generosity and justice. This is, this is what happened. Generosity and justice. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing all their proceeds as any had need. See that? See those words? They had all things together. They had all things in common. They were giving all things away. You see what, you see what they did is they would chose, listen, again, I think you have to have context here, that these people had nothing in common. There were 3,000 people from all over the world, but the only thing they had in common was the gospel and an encounter with God, and they chose to be unified around this gospel message, and here's what it did is it changed them. Then look at this. 
Here's what it said they did. They began to sell all their possessions, and they gave it to everyone who had need. Look, the more you fall in love with Jesus and the more time you spend with him, the more you realize exactly how rich you are. See, here's what they notice. They notice that wealth was not the accumulation of possessions, but it was the relational equality that they found with God. That's the, that is the essence of their wealth, is they realize that none of them deserve to stand in God's presence, yet God himself had met with them and given them everything. Guys, again, I just want to tell you this. I think that the truest mark, the easiest mark to a healthy church, the thing that you can tell most is, is your church filled with generosity? Are we a giving people? Oh, that's what I pray for for us. I pray that we would be a people that give of our time and give of our possessions. And listen to me, and I want to free you of this. Because I know there's a lot of skepticism with this. Listen, God doesn't need your money. Neither does our church. God needs your heart. And I think oftentimes what you read with the Bible is like God created everything. He can give anything he wants. He puts money in the mouth of a fish. He gives a cattle. Like all those things. All those things are true. But what God knows is oftentimes the things that keep you from him is those possessions or your time or whatever else. I think the mark of maturity that what you see in Scripture of a people that met with Jesus are people that care deeply about being generous. They care deeply about justice, right? We talk about this a lot, but God, at the, at the foot of the cross, there is no inequality, right? But here's what the Bible says, that you and I are in our sin and that all of us are equally damned before God if it's not for Jesus Christ, but he would put on flesh, he would die for you, he would raise from the dead, he would save you, and that means that no matter if you're wealthy or poor, black or white or Indian or whatever, at the foot of the cross, you are all the same, and one day, when you get to heaven, there's going to be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that stand around the throne of God, and the truest, most healthy mark of a mature church is a church that reflects what the kingdom of God looks like here in your community. So whatever our community looks like needs to be reflective in this room because we are hanging out and loving people that Jesus loved. And here's how you know this. Again, because it's not who's in this church. Listen to me. And I know, I know, I know, I know this is going to be a hard question, but my question for you is who's around your dinner table? Because the people around your dinner table, the people that you're hanging out with, are you just hanging out with people that look like you, act like you, have the same socioeconomic status as you, and believe the same things as you? Because if you're doing those four things, you're never going to reach people that Jesus reached. Here's what it looks like. A church that is all about generosity and justice are those who are continually giving themselves, spending themselves for the reality of other people, getting the opportunity to know Jesus, and then loving each other well. So, a church that can change the world, listen, a church that can change the world begins with changing the church. Okay, that's it. So we have to change here in the church. I think I say this. Changing the world, there you go. Changing the world begins with changing the church. Right, so the world follows what we do. All right, next one. I got I to gotta go quicker. Worship. Number six, worship. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. Again, this word day by day, they worshiped. Right, they worshiped. And listen, worship for them wasn't just primarily a Sunday morning at church. It was the essence of their lives. This is what they did. Right, so they had glad and generous hearts. They had joy when they met together in worship. So, here, you, giving yourself away, listen, is the only way to truly live. We see this all the time, okay? Here's what the Bible says. If you want to become first, become last. 
If you want to live, take up your cross and die. If you want to express joy, humble yourself and elevate others. If you want joy in your world, in your neighbors, in your neighborhoods, listen, that if you want things to change, you have to change your preferences and you have to give yourselves away so that other people can live. And as you do that, here's what the Bible says, you find joy and people take notice. So this is the one implication as I go really quickly here. The one implication is this. If you do these six things, listen what happens. Multiplication and power. God moves. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. You see that? As they met together, as they allowed the gospel to penetrate their heart, God moved. God moved, right? Notice what God did. People started noticing. And it says God added to their neighbor. They gained favor. That's what it looks like. You know what that means, right? Listen, the way you live actually matters. That's what that means. People take notice when we live a certain way. Right, when we're generous, when we're sacrificial, when we're loving, when we're kind, when we meet together, when we worship, when God, when people see that our hearts are changed by the affections of God, here's what happens is people notice. Right? Notice the balance. 3,000 people came to faith. Multiplication. God created the church. Institution. Balance. He organized them. And listen, as he does that, watch what happens. God keeps adding to them. I think that this is the formula. I think this is what we're supposed to look like, guys. I think that this is what you see in the book of Acts is a healthy church is one that goes out and takes the gospel out, lives a certain way, loves each other well, does incredibly powerful things to one another, and then God adds to their number, and a lot of people come to faith, and then we organize that, and we create healthy, good systems around that, and then what you end up seeing is more people come to faith, and we keep growing and growing and growing. Listen, in one year as a church plant, that's what we've seen happen. Where 10 of us moved here, and look, we're in a room like this that's filling up with people every single week, okay? Here, here, here it is. The last thing I want you to write down, the most attractive thing about the church, okay? The most attractive thing about the church is when the church looks like the community that the world is longing to have but can't find. Because all of us, whether it's CrossFit or Apple or Starbucks, all of us long for the thing that God has created us for, and it's found in this room. When we stop treating church like a Sunday morning activity that we casually go to 1.6 times a month and we fall so deeply in love with Jesus that we give ourselves to one another, that's what happens. So these six things, listen, let's build community because we believe that we're better together. Let's remember the gospel by celebrating these truths together. Let's be a people of prayer and believe in the power of prayer. Let's be a people that's known for our generosity and let's stand up for the vulnerable because we know that one day Jesus stood up for us when we were at our most vulnerable. Let's be a people that loves Jesus and doesn't neglect worshiping together. And let's be a people that's hungry for God's word and worship and prioritize being with him. And now let's be a people that expects God to move in our city and in our world and believe that he actually can. And I promise you what you'll see is that he will. And how can I make that promise? Because 2,000 years ago, 11 people were sitting in Jerusalem and today God is still building his church. Why do we think he's done yet? That's where we're going. Acts chapter 2 is the beginning of the birth of God's movement throughout the entire world.